Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. Hey, we're getting close to double digits here, okay? We're, we're going to be in Acts 10 before you know it. It'll be, in, it'll be January, but we'll be there, okay? Uh, Acts chapter 9, as uh, is, is Pastor Matt has, has already uh, read, we're going we're gonna to cover verses 1 through 9, uh, but we'll dive in in a moment. A few years back, uh, Levi, one of our twins, uh, got a couple of gerbils uh, for his, his birthday from his grandparents, from Oma and Grandpa. Uh, Snowball and Carmel were welcomed into the family. Well, not really by me. Uh, it wasn't a warm welcome, but I, I grew to slightly tolerate our new family members. Uh, Levi especially, he's our animal lover, Right? Uh, he's our animal lover, and so he loved his, he loved his furry new gifts. Uh, unfortunately, both rodents far exceeded the, have far exceeded the lifespan of most uh, gerbils. Uh, Carmel got particularly ornery in his old age and started biting Levi, uh, like, and I'm talking like traumatic, like blood drawing, like bites. So uh, we, we made a, dad made a, a unilateral decision. <laughs> Uh, we relocated Carmel <laughs> to his new forest home uh, down the street in the wooded area. Um, but along the way, uh, <laughs> along the way, it was it was traumatic for Ben and for Titus. Uh, but along the way, Levi. Levi has, has learned that gerbils are really cool. Uh, they, just come, they just come with a lot of responsibility, right, buddy? They just come with a lot of responsibility. And so uh, he's learned that they, they, you know, they, they may look cute, but uh, they, man, they, they can stink up a room in a couple of weeks. Uh, he's learned that, uh, hey, you, you, need to, you need to make sure that they have uh, adequate food and water. Uh, you got to make sure that their the, the the shavings in their cage are, are, are changed out. You got to make sure that you you drop some cardboard in there for them to to gnaw on, not Pokemon cards. Um, and again, Levi uh, now understands that the the gift uh, the gift was really cool, but the gift came with responsibility. Um, church, too many Christians. We want, the, we want the mercy of God. We just don't want the mission of God. We like the mercy of God. We just don't like the mission of God. We, we like, a lot of Christians, they like the gift, uh, just not the call and the responsibility that, that comes with the gift. And this morning, as, as we examine the, the very miraculous conversion of, of Saul, 
uh, we're going to learn a lot about mercy. And we've already been singing about mercy this morning, but we're going to learn a lot about mercy and mission and, and, and ultimately how they cannot be separated. And, and so I would just kind of bring it to you and say, what about you this morning? It's a question that, that we ask often, uh, especially as, as we're talking about the core value of restoration of gracious character. But hey, you know, do you view the, the mercy of God? Do you view the grace of God as something like this commodity that you just get to consume and consume? Or do you view grace, do you view mercy as the very heart and the very character of God that, that you get to put on display for others? That you get to share with others. See, I think we all love the mercy of God when it applies to us, right? Like we love the mercy of God when it applies to us. But the question is, do we have the same fervor and do we have the same passion to see others experience the mercy of God in Christ? And to experience the transforming love of God. See, we... We may not all have like the dramatic Damascus Road experience, but make no mistake, listen, if you've received the mercy of God, you've been released for the mission of God. Amen? Let me say that again. If you have received the mercy of God, you've been released for the mission of God. So I want to look at three things this morning as we dive into Acts 9. We're going we're gonna to look at the first few verses. But the first thing I want to say this morning is that the mercy of God is not limited by the depth of, your fa- of our failure. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? The mercy of God is not limited by the depth of our failure. I want you to look at your, say, your neighbor and say, not limited. <laughs> look at your other neighbor and say, not limited. So look at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest... And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Church family, when verse 1 tells us, when the text tells us that Saul was still, still breathing threats and murder against the church, Keep a couple of things in mind. Uh, One, the first thing I want you to keep in mind is remember the last time we saw Saul, uh, he was holding the coats of those who were murdering Stephen. That's the last time. That was our introduction to Saul. And so, so... Get this picture, even as the the narrative of Acts has shifted and the gospel is moving forward and it's going out in Judea and it's going out in Samaria and even to the remote parts of the world through, through Philip's testimony and witness to an African that we saw last week, the picture, even as, as that's going on, the picture back in Jerusalem is one of oppression. The picture back in Jerusalem is one of oppression. Saul had never stopped 
He had never stopped his assault on the Jerusalem church. And not only was Saul still about this work of of eradicating followers of Jesus, he was now, verse 1 reveals, he's now ready to take his show on the road and, and hunt down and track down Jewish Christians in Damascus, 140 miles away from Jerusalem. Damascus, just for a little context, it it lay within the Roman province of Syria. It was about a week's journey from from Jerusalem, and it was a a, a part of what was called the Decapolis. It was a league of these these ten self-governing cities, so there was a lot of autonomy in Damascus. Now, there's there's a lot of debate over this, and and whether you're interested or not, it's, it's an important question to ask. There's a lot of debate over uh, Saul's authority, the Jewish leader's actual authority under Rome to, to extradite these Jews back to Jerusalem to, to punish them and, and even uh, to, to, uh, to give them the death penalty. But, but here's the deal. A lot of people, uh, many commentators, many historians believe that Saul, uh, Saul had worked out a deal with the king, the ruler over Damascus to extradite these Jews back. And, and, and I would just say, as you look, e- even in the case of Stephen, church family, Rome, uh, it, it, one thing is obvious. As we look at Stephen's death and his martyrdom, Rome was, was either looking the other way or they were outright just complicit in allowing Christians, Jewish Christians, to be purged and, and their lives be taken. Now, the second thing to grasp from verse 1 as you look at the language of verse 1 is that Saul, listen, this dude was consumed he was consumed with this persecution, this mission of persecution. Like, think about this. To breathe, to, to, just that, that, that word, to, to, to breathe implies something. Uh, it implies essence. Uh, breathing is something that you do without even thinking about it, right? Breathing, we, we breathe without thinking about it. And so the air, the, the very air that Saul breathed was one of murderous hatred toward Christians, and in Acts 26.9, later Paul would, himself would speak of his raging fury against Christ followers. And keep in mind, this is what's crazy about this. All of this was done from a framework in, a, in this worldview that, that he was doing the will of God. He thought that he was doing the will. He thought that he was purging idolatry and apostasy from Judaism. So verse 2 tells us that he heads out to, to, to Damascus armed with these, these letters from the high priest to round up followers of the way. See, this is even before uh, they were called Christians. Just says they, they were, uh, he was going after followers of the way, which brings back John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But the other thing that I think is, is cool about that, that verse is it definitely implies that there was a certain unique way of life. There was a, a unique way of behavior and speech that characterized those who were following Jesus. If only that was the case today. In verse 3, we find that the man who was on a, a mission to arrest Christians 
is arrested by the, the light of the glory of God. Church fam, that, that light from heaven was nothing other than the glory of Christ. And so, so what's, what's neat about Paul's testimony, it would be, it's going to be, you know it's important because it's repeated two more times in the book of Acts. And in Acts 22, we learn that this event, it took place around noon. So it took place when the sun would have been beating down the brightest and the hardest. And, and so right in the, in the middle of the day, and Tony, in a moment like a lightning flash, Tony Morita says this. He says, he says that the midday sun was swallowed up by a greater light. Amen? The midday sun was swallowed up by a greater light. The God who seeks out individuals was seeking out Saul. Of all people, church, Saul, the persecutor, the, the, the great opposer of God's work in God's church. And F.F. Bruce says this, that Saul actually saw the risen Christ in addition to hearing his voice. It's not expressly stated in the conversion narrative itself, but it is confirmed as you look at verse 17. It's confirmed in the words, in the words of both Ananias and then later on in Acts 9, Barnabas says the same in verse 26, that Saul actually encountered Jesus he encountered Christ. And in fact, Saul, later Paul, would say the same thing. 1 Corinthians 9.1. 1 Corinthians 15.8. If you want to jot those down. Paul himself would say, I encountered Jesus on that road. And if Christ was risen, and if Jesus Christ was revealing himself, it changed everything. And I want to drop a little bit of application right here because it's important as we think about Saul. See, a merciful God met a man with murder in his heart on that road to Damascus. Are y'all with me? A merciful God met a man with murder in his heart on that road to Damascus. God's mercy is not limited by the depth of our failure because Saul's failure was great. Later, he, he would call himself the chief of sinners. And many believe that, that Saul, this, this same man who, who would go on and write half the New Testament and work out this gospel theology that we all uh, orient our lives around today, that this man Saul never really got over his former failures. And in fact, Galatians 1.13, Paul would say, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul, Saul, who would become Paul, said, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Harry Ironside, uh, uh, the famed preacher and theologian, once said this. He said, Saul never forgave himself for that. God forgave him. The church forgave him. Christians forgave him. But he never forgave himself. Church, I, a couple weeks ago, I, and, I, and I mentioned it last Sunday, I went to the, a, a funeral service for a friend of mine from back in the day when we were both youth pastors in the Houston area. And it's believed that, that my buddy took his life 
And as, as the minister got up and, and, and shared at the funeral, he said, hey, th- this guy, and I'm not going to share his name, he said, hey, he, he lived out the great commandment. Like he, he loved God well. He, he loved others well. He just didn't love himself. And church, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about embracing cheap grace. I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, glossing over unrepentant sin. I, I, I'm talking about saturating your greatest failure in the deepest depravity of your heart with the love of God in Christ and embracing who He says you are in Christ. Amen? And I'm talking about letting those gospel roots go down deep in understanding that though you, listen, you are not going to arrive this side of eternity. Can, a- amen? Like you are not going to arrive this side of eternity. Like you're, you're waiting to, to reach that like idealistic like phase of sanctification. It ain't going to happen this side of eternity. But here's the deal. God is restoring you in all your imperfection. And He will be faithful to complete what He started in you. Philippians 1.6. Amen? God is faithful. And so two things on that. One, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Amen? I don't know if y'all are hearing me. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. The second thing I would say with that is, Christian, if God has redeemed you, if God is is restoring you, and if God is, is for you, then despite the lies of the enemy and even, even the pull of your own flesh, you've got to decide that you are for you. You got to see your, yourself in, in the light of the truth of Scripture that though your sin was great, and can I be honest, it still is. Though your sin is great, his grace, his calling, and his faithfulness is greater still. Amen? But, but mark my words, those who have been arrested by the light of the glory of God and Jesus, they'll never be the same. They'll never be the same. God's mercy, listen, it's greater. It's greater. It's greater than the depth of our failure. Second thing this morning, as we look at verses 4 and 5, the mercy of God reveals a personal God. Amen? The mercy of God reveals a personal God. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, personal God. Look, look at your other neighbor and say, personal God. Awesome. Verse 4 and 5 says this, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, verse 4 finds Saul falling to the ground and responding to this voice. Uh, But the voice, check this out, it's calling him by name. Put put yourself in Saul's shoes. Not only this, but that that twofold repetition of his name, it's, it's important. 
It, it, it's significant. Anytime we see God repeating someone's name in Scripture, almost always is due to the gravity of the situation. It's almost like a warning. So, so when God calls uh, out to Abraham and he says, Abraham, Abraham, is he's about to take the knife to his son Isaac. When God calls out to Moses, 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 he, he's approaching the burning bush. He's on holy ground. When Jesus called out to Martha and said, Martha, Martha, she was busying herself. She was missing Jesus because she was so busy and busy with service. And when Jesus called out to Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, his heart was breaking for a wayward city. And true to form, Saul, Saul was followed by this question. Why are you persecuting me? And so Saul's shocked, right? He's blinded one, but he's shocked. And in response, he says, uh, who are you, Lord? And the response comes back. I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Church, this, this is huge. A couple, couple of thoughts on this. For Saul, this was the complete like demolition and deconstruction of, of his previously entrenched worldview and way of life. He had been completely wrong. And it's all hitting him. And the voice that came back was the voice of the very one that he, this dude had devoted his life to fighting against. And then the other thing I would say is for us, what a, what a comfort to read these words of Jesus. What a, what a comfort to know that our suffering is felt by the Savior. Amen? Like, what a, what a comfort. R.C. Sproul says this. He so identifies with his people that any believer who's persecuted for Christ's sake is identified with Jesus himself. It's like this. As, as a parent, any parent knows this reality, especially, especially when you have a little one who, who is sick. Uh, a, a few years ago, when Ruthie was just a baby, Benjamin, our, our fourth son, was he, he was he was still two and he got the flu and Ben was was sick. And, and let me tell you, I, like Steph and I felt it when Ben was sick. I, I felt it looking over and watching him lie in his little bed, uh, his, his little body fighting off fever and, and fighting for health. Listen, when, when, my, when my son is sick, you better believe that his daddy feels it. How much more the, our father, church, how much more the Savior? Church, I, I think that so often we, we talk and we think of our, check this out, we, we talk about being in Christ, right? Like we, that is Paul's theology, that is gospel theology, that we are in Christ, we're in his righteousness, we have all these things in Jesus, but we forget this mystery that Christ is also in us. Christ is in us. He's not just like sovereign Lord over you. He's not just walking along beside you. He is in you, experiencing the joy 
experiencing the suffering and the pain and everything else in between. And church, I, I, I believe that these words of Jesus to Saul would become part of the very foundation of, his, of Paul's later theology. Derek Thomas says, of all the theological reflection that Paul engaged in, none was more profound than his insistence that believers are in union and communion with Jesus. And here on the road to Damascus, Christ's solidarity with his people, with the body of Christ, was was being embedded in Paul's heart. And here's some application on this. And this is important. God, God calls us personally by name. Amen? God calls us personally by name. In fact, I would say if the gospel is not personal for you, then, then it's generic. And a generic gospel doesn't save anyone. And here's what I, here's what I mean by that. The demons know that Christ saves sinners. Demonic beings know that Christ saves sinners. They understand the way of salvation. Hear me, my my fear is that many uh, men and women in the American church, they, they understand the same, but they have never responded to the voice of Jesus calling their name. And they've never responded to the personal call of Christ to apply His finished work to their sin and to, and to their failure. Jesus, listen, hear me. I, like, I, I have to tell you this because I, I love you. Like, but Jesus doesn't save generic masses. He saves individuals, individuals who believe and receive God's gift of grace in Jesus for them. His mercy is deeply personal, deeply personal. Hear me, it's deeply personal, but it must be personally received. Now, the third thing this morning is this. The mercy is meant to lead to mission. The mercy is meant to lead to mission. I want you to, I want you to look to your neighbor and say, mission. Look at your other neighbor and say, mission. Look at verses 6 through 9. It says this. Rise, Jesus said, and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. They brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. See, the mercy is meant to lead to mission. Verse 6 tells us, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So, like, there's no separating the conversion and the call of Saul. Like, there's no separating the, the, the conversion and the calling of Saul, who, uh, who would become the Apostle Paul. He had to, listen, verse 4, we see him hit the ground because of the revelation of Christ. He had to be brought low before he could rise. He had to come to the end of himself. 
He had to come to the end of of this former way of life. But here we find the command to rise. Church, understand the gospel implications here. What a crucial word this is. The gospel exposes your sin, not to leave you there, not to leave you wallowing in it, but to rise with Christ who defeated and conquered that sin and death. Man, what a word. In verse 7, though, though Saul's companions, they, they, they heard the voice, the text tells us, only Saul was privy to the revelation of Christ. And in fact, he, his brother's going to remain physically blinded by the encounter for the next few days. And it, as, he, as he rises in verse 8, William Barclay would said this, said this, The one who had intended to enter Damascus like an avenging fury was led by the hand into that same city, blind and helpless as a child. So check this out. The one who had been commissioned from the priest in Jerusalem for a mission of death encountered the great high priest (laughs) who was soon to commission him for a new mission of deliverance. Church, not only did Jesus, check this out, not only did Jesus not condemn Saul, not only did he pour out grace upon grace and call him by name, that day Jesus invited Saul into a mission. Derek Thomas says the spiritual trans... We can't understate this enough. Uh, We can't overstate this enough. The spiritual transformation of Paul, Derek Thomas says, ranks among the most significant events in world history. You take out Acts 9 from the Bible, and the Bible doesn't make sense. Without Paul... There would be, Derek Thomas says, there would be no New Testament as we know it. It is no exaggeration to suggest that the most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion to Christianity of one Saul of Tarsus. It's important. Why? Because, listen, Jesus wasn't just pouring out mercy on a violent persecutor. He was calling him to be his apostle and and, and chief missionary to the Gentile world. And so hear me like I like I I don't want to downplay in many ways. Saul's conversion stands alone as as unique due to his special role in God's kingdom program as the untimely born apostle. Obviously, Saul's role, his his conversion, his mission was unique. But listen, every Christ follower, let me say this again, every Christ follower has a unique kingdom purpose. Amen? We all, listen, we all have a, a, this kingdom purpose, these, these works, Ephesians 2.10, which God has prepared for us to walk in. And this connection of, of mercy with mission is a common thread throughout every conversion story. And here's the application. Christian, the mercy of God, it is meant to lead you to mission. His mercy is not meant to end with you and just kind of in you and over you. It's meant to flow outward from your life. 
And you've got to echo, we've all got to echo the words of Isaiah when he said, here am I. Send me, Lord, send me. So, so it's like this, whatever you were doing before you met Jesus, like whatever, whatever you were doing before you met Jesus, God's kingdom purpose now trumps your plans. You say that again. Whatever you were doing before you met Jesus, God's kingdom purpose now trumps your plans. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, like you're on mission, <laughs> period. You are on mission. It's like this. When, when someone is uh, enlisted in the military and, and then uh, they, they decide to bail out, right? They bail out and they, de- they decide to do their own thing and pursue their own interests instead of the, the commands of their superior officer. We, we call that going AWOL, right? We call, that, we, th- we call that going absent without leave. And my fear is that we've got too many absent without leave Christians. And if God never released you from the mission, what, what, are, you, what are you doing your own thing for? What are you doing your own thing for? We've received the mercy, but somehow we thought that we could walk away from the mission. I'll, I'll, close, I'll close with this this morning. Let me close with this. Nick, Nick Saint, who was a missionary with, with Jim Elliott, said this. I would rather die now than live a life of oblivious ease in so sick a world. Nick Saint said, I would rather die now than live a life of oblivious ease in so sick a world. Church, our, like our world is sick, amen? In fact, like it's kind of a mess right now. There's just a few things going on. And in my opinion, the church is being exposed right now. We're so bent out of shape. We're, we're getting caught up in the noise of, of American politics. We're getting caught up in the noise of COVID and culture and all, all the things. But we're not moving toward those around us with the best news ever. That Jesus sets people free from the sin and death, check this out, that resides in all of us. It's not out there, it's in here. It's both. So can we echo the words of Nick Saint or is our fear of death actually exposing our lack of hope in the resurrection? See, none of us, none of us have a testimony like Saul's. Like, if you do, please come talk to me after the service. Like, <laughs> come connect with me. I had a, I had a conversation with a, with a young lady, awesome, awesome college student this week who's been attending Restoration. And as we're talking, and I'm hearing her story, she she sort of uh, she sort of downplayed her her testimony uh, because because she she came up in in the church she she came up with uh, in, in in a Christian home and was saved at a young age and, and, and like I, I get it 
I, I, like, I, I do, I get it. I think it's partly because we, we glamorize the Saul testimonies because they're, like, they are powerful. But praise God if you were saved young, right? Like, that's a grace. Like, I, I praise God. Like, I trusted Jesus at eight years old. We have many college students who have trusted Jesus while in college. My, my buddy Nate trusted Jesus a, a couple, two, three weeks ago. But the common denominator of every testimony is the mercy of God. The common denominator of every testimony is the mercy of God. And make no mistake, your reception of God's mercy is an invitation into a mission. It's a mission that's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger. C.T. Studd said this. I love this quote. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. C.T. Studd said, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. God is merciful. He has proven his mercy once and for all at the cross of Christ. He has proven it through the cross of Christ. Christ who was obedience in our place. Christ who is righteousness in our place. Christ who paid the price for our sin at the cross. Christ who rose and conquered and defeated sin and death. But listen, church, mercy comes with a mission. So step one is to personally receive The mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That's step one. If you've never done that, like you're not, listen, you're not even on on the ramp. That is is step one, is to personally receive the mercy of God for you in Jesus. And then step two, look around. Find those who don't know Jesus. Let's get to work. Y'all pray with me this morning.